In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to Bernstein In the Know. In this series, we discuss key investment controversies together with what is top of mind with those that are, you guessed it, in the know. I'm Richard Moffat, based in London. And with me this week is Will Woods, Bernstein's European General and Food Retail Analyst. Any discussion of retail trends, whether in Europe or globally, in the summer of 2023 inevitably triggers questions about inflation, interest rates, income inequality, supply chains, employment and the cost of living crisis. We're going to attempt to avoid all of that. As pun intended, the shelf life on any of those answers is about 48 hours. Instead, in this conversation, we look at longer term, more structural trends in the retail space. The ceiling for online penetration, the direct-to-consumer model, the persistence of brands, TikTok, fashion chameleons, and automation. Will, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Richard. Nice to be here. So let's start with what is the one thing we should know about the European consumer right now. Yeah, the consumer continues to surprise us, really. There's quite clearly a cost of living crisis. But when you look at it and under the hood, there's a huge variation in what's going on. You look at the premium end in grocery. Ocado sold the most champagne it's ever sold in one of the months this year. And yet the discounters are flying value end private label, the really cheap Tesco uh, own value is up 40% year on year. So you're seeing a real split in what's going on. And you chuck in stuff like hot weather over the last couple of weeks and apparel sales are flying as well. People are all going out buying the latest stuff for the summer. And that kind of goes against all the trends that consumers are under a lot of pressure. What is the global retail landscape going to look like five years from now? I mean, there's a lot of talk of online versus offline. Where's that settling? Yeah, so I think you have to take a step back. And I know we're all a little bit fed up of talking about the pandemic now, but the pandemic did change the way that we shop. You look at something like online penetration in terms of clothing, and it went up from 40, 45% up to 60%. So 60% of the clothes that we buy at the moment are bought online. And that's not changed, right? People are quite happy to still buy online. And we still think it's a, a trend, right? Online penetration is going to keep increasing. And the key thing that I look at there is when you take the number of 25 to 35 year olds who are buying groceries or clothing online, it's much higher than those who are over 50. And if you just roll forward 10, 15 years, those 25 to 35 year olds are still going to be shopping online, but be 10 years older. What we're seeing is just kind of careful moves by retailers to challenge consumers. ASOS started blacklisting consumers saying effectively, if you keep returning all of these products, you're not going to be able to shop with us. We're not going to accept your order. And I think we'll see some of that pushback from the retailers who don't want to accept unprofitable orders in the future. And we've seen, you know, some big brands going DTC. I think Nike have effectively killed the small sports shop retail industry just because they're a big part of people's sales. They're no longer wholesale. Is that a trend we'll see in more brands or is that just only the most powerful can do that? I think it's a trend you'll see across the whole industry. When you look at it, online has opened up the opportunity for you and me to go out there tomorrow, set up a small apparel brand. And it works particularly well in apparel because of social media. We could set up a small apparel brand, scale it pretty quickly, sell some clothes and get scale pretty quickly in that business. I think what that's done is that killed the department store, right? The department store has died over the last 10, 15, 20 years Debenhams, House of Fraser don't really exist in the same way anymore. Now, what we're cautious about is something like Zalando or some of the online aggregators, ASOS, etc. They're effectively offering the same thing, right? Really wide choice, but actually not having that brand connection. If you think about Nike, 
you want to buy Nike trainers, right? That's what you go out to buy. That's what you search for. You don't really care about where you buy them as long as they're the cheapest, you get them the quickest, as you said before. And, you know, with, you highlighted there that you can create a brand quickly, but can you destroy a brand very quickly? I mean, if anyone can build a brand, does that mean the barriers to entry, the persistence of an existing brand is going to be lower? I think that's certainly a problem. Brands live and die every couple of years, right? They don't necessarily have really long lifespans. And that's the same in both fashion, where we don't want to wear the same clothes that our parents wore, our children wear, even our friends wear. So that's got a bit more of a cycle and the fashion trends come in and out. Um, we were thinking the other day about things like uh, Jack Wills and Abercrombie that really had their heyday in the 2010s, bringing back a kind of preppy view of fashion. No one really cares anymore because fashion has moved on. But the same applies to grocery. If you think about all these kind of meat-free alternatives that many of the supermarkets are selling at the moment, occasionally a brand pops up, it dies, and it rides those different trends that are in the market at the different times. I mean, you're hinting there that power is shifting to the brands, you know, away from the distribution. In a world of chat GP and even just existing technology on our phone, you know, you can ask your phone, get me the cheapest pair of night trainers. And the technology exists if you set your phone up right for it to do that. Our Korean and Japanese teams have had a look at this and concluded that, well, in Korea, this will just steer you towards the cheapest provider. And in Japan, ChatGDP will steer you towards the best service provider. But where does that leave the people in the middle? Is it even worth being a platform? It depends by category. So when you look at it, if you want to buy the cheapest batteries, you don't mind asking ChatGPT to send you the cheapest batteries as quickly as possible. But in something like apparel, even in something like food, quality, look, feel matter. And therefore, if you say, get me a wedding dress or get me a dress to go to a wedding, ChatGPT is not going to give you the right answer or exactly what you're looking for. I'm also a little bit cautious because five or six years ago, I was a consultant prior to being at Bernstein when we spent a long time looking at things like Alexa and voice ordering devices. And when you looked at those, people were terrified that people weren't going to look at screens anymore. They were just going to talk to their Alexa all day and order all this stuff. I don't remember ordering anything via an Alexa. And you would think, get me some rugby studs, get me some batteries would be a prime candidate for that sort of thing. But isn't that just that technology isn't quite there? They used to have those, you know, the in the early days of the passport photo booths at airports that just never worked and you registered and you queued and you're always quicker to go and see the person. But now, where that's installed correctly, that is hugely time-saving. Everyone uses them. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I mean, I was at Carrefour in 2016 and they'd invented this little device that you could both talk into and scan barcodes in your house to replenish your shopping basket, right? The technology was rubbish. No one wanted to use it. I think the difference between something like passport gates and things like that and facial recognition, it's quite a functional single purpose use. Whereas if you're trying to capture the effectively the entire set of human emotion related to brands and products and put it into a device that can give you the perfect recommendations, it's really difficult. If you go onto Amazon today and you look at your recommended homepage, it probably recommends you stuff that you bought in the last five days. You don't need any more rugby studs now. You don't need more batteries now. It can't predict what you need. On that, I mean, do you think there's still a place for curation then? A hundred percent. I think curation is super important. So when you look at someone, again, like a Zalando, and you've got 13,000 different types of dresses, does anyone really care? 
I don't think so. You go on the first page, maybe the second page. The same applies to Google, right? Have you ever been past page two? Probably not, right? It, it becomes less and less important. And actually, that's what consumers want. They want to connect with these brands who give them things that they want. Aggregation is important. Ease of access is important, again, for different categories. But actually, social media is pretty good at connecting you and keeping you in touch with the brands that you feel are part of your life. You touched on brand creation being easier. But how much have things really changed with creation of AI, social media? Is it just you need to repurpose your talent for your creatives just to use the different tools available to build the brand and engage with customers? Or is it a completely new skill set that traditional brands might struggle with because they just don't have the in-house capability? I think we're still in the early days of this. So if you asked a tool to design you a new T-shirt to sell or even a new food product, it's probably very unlikely to be able to do it in the right way. Again, as a consultant, I worked with one of the leading kind of grocery retailers and what they were using that kind of technology, more kind of machine learning, big data was to understand latest trends. And what we found was that by scraping social media, Twitter, all these kind of bloggers, all this kind of stuff, um, we found that basically a lot of trends that occur in Brooklyn come to London in about 12 months' time. So you look at like Tempe and things like that. It just takes about 12 months to feed through the system. And if as a retailer you're able to do that big data scraping to understand the trends that are going to come and get ahead of them, then timing that could be really important. You can get ahead of the game slightly. That data edge, that data set, it just seems to me that everyone's collecting data on all of us everywhere. So does anyone have a definitive data set that's particularly different? Or is it just if you have 10 pieces of data about someone, you can categorize them pretty effectively? Being bigger is better, but it's challenging to use the data. So even the best retailers out there don't know what to do with their data today. There's very famous anecdotes or stories that circle in the retail world of Target or Tesco, not sure which one, being able to predict that somebody was pregnant before they actually knew themselves that they were pregnant. I think it's more of a myth than a reality. And the big problem that a lot of retailers and brands have is they've got millions and millions of rows, but trying to actually make something tangible, actionable out of that, that they could send you the right promotion or tell you to buy this right product is really difficult. I mean, the prime example comes back to that kind of subscription item in grocery. I think it'd be super easy for, I don't know, Sainsbury's or Tesco to know when I need milk again and to send it to me, right, in a basket of other things that I also buy pretty much every week. And yet they haven't quite cracked that. And whoever could crack that could capture my uh, 80% of my grocery spending, which would be huge. But I mean, just on that, I mean, what sort of firepower are they putting towards this? Because you look at a TikTok, for example, that algo, love it or hate it, clearly works. Within five, ten views, they can pretty accurately predict something you're going to click on again. And then they've got another data set. And they're really spending a lot of time to take people's time and keep people on that platform. Is it just the food retailers haven't committed that level of skill or is it just a different market? I actually think it's just a lot more complex. So if you think about what TikTok does, if you watch some videos of some dogs, just keep showing you dogs for the next hour, right? The problem with Tesco or Sainsbury's is they've got to understand who's been at home that week, what frequency you're buying different items at that time, what time of year it is, whether you want to eat healthy, all those kind of different factors that change how you shop. Now, 
theoretically, that should probably be possible because they've had five, six, seven years of data for about you. But it's really hard to action. And then the other thing is, look, the barriers to entry, you look at TikTok, if you're bored of a video, you just swipe up and it disappears. Getting you to actually purchase something that you don't want is quite difficult. And I think we've seen this with a couple of the fashion companies who've turned up and sent you boxes of clothes that you might want to try on. And they've really struggled because they haven't met the expectation. And when you get a box of £300 worth of clothes, you're likely just to send it back, which is really challenging for the economics. Whilst we're on fashion, what do you see driving profitability for fashion business? How do you survive in the fashion world going forward? So I think the key thing to survive in in the fashion world is you've got to be able to reinvent yourself quite quickly and obviously sell and produce the clothes at a reasonable price. But I think reinventing your brand is critical. We call it the idea of being a fashion chameleon effectively. And what that means is someone like a Zara or a Primark copies the latest trends that are in the market and brings them to consumers at a lower price. We use the example of a recent Valentino bright pink suit that came out in October, November last year, and Zara's got it in its store, but instead of being several thousand pounds, it's 60 pounds. That reinvention is really key. Otherwise, you end up being like some of these trends. I mean, the famous example is probably Juicy Couture in the early 2000s, right? Those tracksuits were everywhere. They're not everywhere anymore. And that's because Juicy Couture tracksuits were a thing for a bit. The same with things like Ugg boots appeared. They're not really a thing in the same way. And so this reinvention is really critical. So unless you are a super premium brand with the sort of heritage and longevity, if you are a fashion brand, what you're saying is you only have a window. You might as well hit it because even if you try and play the long game with your brand, you will drift out of fashion. And that's just the business you're in. Well, I think it's uh, slightly different things. I think these fashion chameleons, as, as we characterize them, can just last a lot longer. I would imagine that we will still be shopping at a Zara or a Primark in 20, 30 years' time, whereas Ugg Boots or Juicy Couture have a lifespan of a couple of years. Equally, on the flip side, we think that basics have a play, right? And by basics, we don't mean a white T-shirt or a very simple white T-shirt that's cheap. If you think about Levi's, Levi's is a classic example here. Levi's jeans haven't changed in... 70 years or something. The 501s are still 501s, but there's limited growth there, right? They're not the most exciting businesses because they're kind of stuck to their product heritage, product type. And so we really think if you want to be the most fashionable all the time, keep reinventing yourself. Otherwise, you're at risk of boom and bust or not much growth. Switching track to one of your other pet subjects, online food delivery. Five years from now, is there space for standalone grocery companies or do you need to be integrated as part of a wider distribution channel? Yeah, I think you've got to split into two channels here effectively. I think the first one is grocery, right? And this is big basket. You go out and order £100 of groceries for the week or for two weeks for your whole family to eat. The best way to do that is as a retailer yourself. If you think about it, your local store is really actually probably not too far away from you, your Tesco or Sainsbury's, and therefore Tesco and Sainsbury's can deliver it to you. They found it really difficult to make that profitable because it's really challenging to do. But then you've got to think about the other side of the industry, which is really kind of food delivery space, so delivering hot food to you. That's even more challenging because you've got to deliver hot food to someone in 10 minutes from a restaurant where you have no control over what they're doing. And that's, again, really difficult. The interesting thing here is consumers want it. And so as a restaurant or as a grocery store, you don't really have a choice because if all your competitors are selling online, 
you either miss out on those sales, which is bad, or you try and make online work. We talk about the hot food delivery. Is the consumer going to just get a bit more sophisticated in terms of their choices? Because some things just do not work, no matter how close you are to the restaurant. I mean, is that just the restaurants becomes more sophisticated about what menu they offer because their own brand is on the line every time they send out bad food? Or do consumers work it out? I think they work it out. I mean, there's a reason why in food delivery, we started with pizzas. Domino started this in the 90s, and it's because the pizza is the perfect thing to transport on a bike. It's flat, it stays warm in a box, and you can give it to someone and it doesn't really change. Except when I last thought of delivery, presumably quite an inexperienced driver, he put the pizzas sideways. <laughs> so we had some very nice calzones. Yeah, that's always going to be a problem. And you're always going to have the exception that proves the rule. And that's actually one of the reasons why we think it worked in Asia quite quickly and quite well, because a lot of the rice, noodle, even curry-based dishes can transport quite well in containers. So you go back to the 1800s and you look at the Dabawallas in India delivering tiffin tins. That was the first food delivery company, right? When you think about transporting like a steak and chips, the quality is going to be pretty rubbish, right? Because you need to eat it while it's still warm effectively. So I think we'll see sophistication in consumers. We'll also probably see some of those companies that went online during the pandemic probably take away their online offering. So you'll see a more moderate view on that effectively. Who is leading this space? I mean, where is the best tech? Who is best at it? No one, really. The technology isn't that differentiated for food delivery. If you talk about that delivering hot food, it's really a logistics game of getting a bike from one restaurant to a person in their home. If you talk about the grocery side of things, I think it's much more interesting because it's a much more complex challenge. If you think you order 100 pounds of groceries, that might be 50, 60 items. And you've got to pick those items to be the best used by dates, best quality and get them to the customer in time. Ocado is definitely one of the leaders in the space here. And what is it they do so differently, Ocado? So Ocado is fully automated. So they've got these big 3D grids with robots running along up and down the grid, picking your items for you. It basically takes a lot of the labor out of the system. When I was a consultant and you look at improving Tesco, Sainsbury's, Carrefour's online profitability, what we used to do is we used to follow people around stores, timing how long it would take them to pick a frozen bag of peas and then go to pick the next item. And you'd end up making recommendations like, do you know what, when they've picked the peas, turn right at the end of the aisle instead of turning left at the end of the aisle. And so in doing it really manually, you've got to really fine tune the, the labor operations. And that's not easy. Ocado takes all of that out and removes a lot of the labor. And therefore, it's much more automated in terms of the process. And presumably with smart robots, AI, is that the end game? You have to have this automated. Yeah, completely. And I think when you look at that, one of the things that's really interesting about Ocado, I'm hesitant to use the word AI, but it's certainly sophisticated machine learning that they're using, is they know it's going to be hot this weekend, let's say. And so what their robots do is they end up reorganizing the grid. So they put the beer, the ice lollies, the burgers for the barbecues towards the top of the grid. That just means that they can pick those items and deliver them to consumers quicker. If you think about in-store, you can't do that, right? Because if you've got some manual workers walking around the store trying to find the burgers, the burgers have probably already sold out the night before because people know it's going to be hot that weekend. And so it's really difficult without that automation, without that machine learning to really optimize what's going on. But you look at the automated solution. I understand that Walmart in the US has some automated but because of their reach, because they've got shops everywhere, 
they also have employees. They've got some huge number of employees and they can sign up to the scheme where that difficult to reach customer you drop off for us. And, you know, the last thing they do before they go home is do the shop for that difficult to reach customer. And that gives Walmart this unbelievable reach. Does that just mean ultimately you have to be a scale retailer to ever offer a proper online delivery service because you'll only then will you have the sort of cost advantage? I think so. I think scale is super important. And the big problem at the moment is, great, you could get your employees to deliver it for it, but you almost get the same problem as your delivery rider who delivered you the calzones, right? You don't have the cold storage in your car when you're delivering it. So if somebody got delivered meat that's out of date or warm or something like that, you could cause all sorts of issues. So I think there's a lot of risk in that perspective. I think what we've got at the moment is you've got to balance two things. One, if you take an Ocado type solution, it's bigger it's more expensive, but it's way more efficient in terms of operations. And the big problem is Ocado can't make that smaller just yet. The technology just isn't there. They need to have a lot more experience in operating these before they shrink it. And that's not because it's an Ocado failure. It's just no one has been able to make these work on a smaller scale yet. Equally, if you look at Tesco or Sainsbury's or Walmart or Arhold or someone like that, they've got loads of stores really close to consumers. They're often in the best locations because cities grow around supermarkets. But the big problem is you've got to do that all manually. And so you've got these two quite binary options. Effectively, what I think we'll see in the future is the Ocado style technology will get much smaller and it will start to be put in stores. And so what we'll see is we'll see store space starting to be used for a lot of this technology, which then gives you the best of both worlds effectively, right? You've got automated technology much closer to the consumer. The big problem is we've been developing this for, well, Ocado has been developing it for 20 years now, and it's not there. It will probably be another 20 years before we get to a place where it works. And how difficult is this? I mean, how sustainable is that competitive edge? Could a Tesco's or someone just commit the money to do this? Or is it time and expertise? They just don't have. I think it's very difficult for two reasons. One, you've got to put in a lot of money. So Ocado's spent several billion pounds developing this solution to date. I think secondly, the scale really matters, right? So Ocado has all the data of how to operate these sites. It knows exactly what temperature you should start putting the burgers towards the top when people start to buy those burgers because it knows when people buy those burgers in the past, right? So it's got a lot of that data effectively. And then thirdly, look, retailers really struggle with recruitment. They can't attract the best automation engineers or the best data scientists to go and work for them because they're not the most interesting, highest growth businesses, right? And that's a sad fact. But if you've got the option as a data scientist to go and work for uh, Google or, or another tech company or go and work for Tesco, you'd probably choose the former. And that's a big problem. I think it's the same across most of retail technology, very few people try and build it themselves because it's not really worth it, right? They don't have the skill set. The real strength of the retailers is understanding consumers and getting products to them that they want in the quickest way possible. But why is this different? Is, I mean, is it just that temperature, as you said earlier, and shelf life just means this is a bit more than just an inventory management system and just bin picking and getting things into the right place at the right time because you have to treat food differently? Yeah, I think food is very different. If you think comparing those two baskets, if I go and do my grocery shop, I might be buying 50, 60 items and I'm choosing from a range of somewhere between 30 and 40,000 items. So if you just do the very simple math of 30 to 40,000, choose 60 and all the possible combinations, it's super complex. If you compare it to like 
apparel or even some of the more commoditized office and stationary categories, you're often just buying one item out of a range of 20,000 items, right, and getting it shipped to you. And so just the complexity there isn't there. Also in grocery, you've got to do ambient storage and cold storage and even frozen storage. So you've got all these problems in that as well. So I think it's a the complexity of the problem leads to a solution that needs to be more automated effectively. And that's the key challenge. We're running up against time, but so just to finish, if you ever wanted to leave Burnsy, which I highly doubt, where would you go? Where do you think in the retail space is the most exciting, interesting place to work, whether it's introduction of AI, data, where do you see the most opportunity? I think you've got to look at something like automation, right? I think grocery automation is super interesting. I think it's also the future in terms of consumer trends. If you think about that subscription type idea that we were talking about before, just getting your basic grocery items delivered every week. And then finally, if you think about labor costs are going up around the world and we think that will continue for the next five to 10 years, people have got to start replacing labor with more technology. And that's going to be one of the biggest problems facing many of these retailers over the next five to 10 years. That's us at the end of time. Good to hear that there are maybe some technology automation deflationary solutions that mean we won't all be paying more for everything forever. Thanks for your time, Will, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Richard. You've been listening to In The Know with Bernstein Research. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to like or subscribe. In the Know with Bernstein Research. If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at bernsteinresearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.